There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. It's the rate that's a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello, everybody. My name is Peter Moraitis, and on behalf of the Port Phillip, Glen Ira and Bayside Emergency Climate Action Networks, that's PCAN, GCAN and BCAN, welcome this evening to the gas fallacy, why we need a renewable-led recovery for our climate, health and economy. I would also like to thank the many groups, the many supporter groups that have made this webinar possible. Too many to name. We have had over 500 registrations for this event and the event could not be timelier. As you may have read in today's newspapers, the federal government plans a massive expansion of gas production across Australia in the name of leading Australia out of the COVID-caused economic downturn. This at a time when our world is on the precipice of climate catastrophe. Our aim tonight is to understand more about the impacts of gas as well as the government's plans and the very real renewable alternatives to gas. We could not think of better experts to help us do that than our speakers tonight. However, in addition to better understanding, we want to get the ball rolling on community action to respond to these government plans, starting tonight. Esther Abram will be our moderator for the night. Esther is a past Director of Environment Victoria, the first CEO of the Moreland Energy Foundation, and currently runs a consultancy for environmental groups called Estuary. Our networks, comprising a multitude of grassroots environment groups, stretch from central Melbourne down to Western Port and inland to the Dandenongs. This is part of the land of the Bunwarong people, and it is now my privilege to, to introduce Geron Yarraman Steele, a Bunwarong traditional owner. Which sadly was lost from this recording. So hello everyone. I'm Esther Abram and I'm moderating the webinar this evening. Thank you very much, Giran, for such a wonderful, special welcome to country. Uh, I think you've given us a lot to think about and certainly we really appreciate the sense of purpose and the focus of purpose that you've given us tonight. Nearly 300 people participating in tonight's webinar, which, which is absolutely fabulous. And I understand that people are tuning in from many different parts of Melbourne, from different lands of the First Nations people. I'm attending from the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. We have a full and fascinating agenda to get through this evening. A highly motivated team of organisers have brought together excellent speakers to help us all understand why a gas fight recovery is the wrong approach. 
And I think it's really important for you to know that tonight's meeting is being recorded and you'll be able to share with other people a version of this recording on climactic.com.au. I'm sure the organisers will let you know when that's available. Given that things are moving very quickly, this webinar has been structured to encourage a lot of emails to politicians to show that the public is concerned about the gas-fired recovery. Earlier Peter mentioned the announcement of the Prime Minister today. So things are happening, we need to be aware and to take action. If you're interested in sending an email or two, I recommend getting ready to take some notes because you're about to hear from three experts who will have some very good pointers that you'll be able to include in those emails. So now I'd like to introduce the first speaker, Dr George Crisp. George is a medical practitioner who works as a GP in Perth. He has a long-standing involvement in Doctors for the Environment and will help us understand the health implications of a gas-fired recovery. Over to you, George. Thank you, um, Esther, and thank you for inviting me to discuss the um, health implications of gas development. Um, our interest in Doctors for the Environment is understanding and explaining links between environmental and human health, and there's much more on this on our website with the link below. Gas development poses serious health risks for us, and it's primarily due to the climate-mediated effects from greenhouse gas emissions, but also, as I will just briefly mention about, is other local chemical pollution and impacts. Um, as our understanding of climate science has increased, so too has our understanding of the consequences, and in particular for our health. Health was barely mentioned in the first IPCC report in 1992, but two decades later, um, it's been recognised as the biggest health threat facing us this century. And like unfolding events of climate change, so too we're seeing unfolding health consequences. This is no longer a future prediction. And it's why doctors globally now recognise climate change as the health emergency and are speaking out about it as such. Exposure to heat is the most direct, immediate way that our health is compromised, but it's not so obvious if you look at average temperatures, you know, um, how exposure is increasing or why it's so important. The um, average, as you can see, is, is actually really composite of, of a distribution of temperatures that occurs. If you look at temperatures with just a one degree change in the average, you can see that at the heat extreme, we're getting almost 400% more extremes. Plus, we're getting new events beyond that previous range, which are things that we call unprecedented. We're sensitive to temperature. We know that some people are particularly prone to these, you know, or vulnerable, the elderly, people with underlying medical conditions, and children. One study in Melbourne, which, which showed that for three days in a row where the average temperature was over 27 degrees, which is not that hot, there was a 40% increase in the rate of heart attacks in the community. Of course, climate change doesn't just affect temperature, it affects humidity, rainfall, weather patterns, particularly uh, the, ex the intensity and behaviour of extreme weather events. All of these events have um, significant direct physical um, effects and, um, you know, burns, tra trauma, drowning, but also effects range, you know, that are mediated by other pathways. So, for example, interruption of health services or other essential services or infrastructure or um, social and economic impacts. But by far the largest disease burden, certainly the most persistent, relates to the mental health consequences of these uh, next phase. So we know that all of these events, bushfires, floods, droughts, as well as having you know, significant local uh, community impacts cause um, mental health impacts, and especially 
Um, we know that it, this, you know that, that some people in society are prone, and children are especially vulnerable. So we know that heat waves, bushfires, droughts—they all have quite significant and long-lasting um, mental health consequences. If you look at children, you see that their rates of um, psychological distress and impacts are both greater, and of course, it affects them during a vital stage of their development, which can have lasting, lifelong lasting impacts. Uh, next, please. Uh, climate change is um, also tied to air pollution. We know that there are around 7 million deaths each year relating to um, air pollution, mostly from burning fossil fuels. We also know that climate change worsens air pollution, both through the formation of ozone, which is a toxic um, secondary pollutant formed from volatile organic compounds and oxides and nitrogen, which are products of gas, um, also from increasing bushfire smoke. Estimated that around 417 deaths occurred last summer in eastern states related to bushfire smoke, about 1,124 heart, heart attack emissions or heart-related emissions and 1,300 asthma presentations. We also know that pollen increases with carbon dioxide levels and temperature, and we're seeing more allergic respiratory disease in our daily practice. It's quite easy to see how direct effects of, you know, impact us. But in fact, it's the, those that are mediated through ecological and environmental pathways that are both more insidious and more profound, because those changing conditions also affect the natural world and other environmental parameters. So, you know, affecting the transmission of infectious diseases, particularly mosquito-borne diseases, freshwater security, food production. You know, for example, that just a one degree increase in temperatures can, correlates to about a 10% drop in food yields at a time when we're going to need to produce more food. And those major diseases that affect particularly the developing world, malaria, diarrheal disease, undernutrition, they're all climate sensitive. And reducing that food and fresh water availability, exacerbating other underlying environmental and social stresses can lead to displacement, forced migration and conflict, and of course, by mid-century, we're anticipating large numbers of people on the move, perhaps up to a billion. And this is why climate change presents the greatest threat to our health and why actions we take now or don't are going to have such profound implications for our future health. As well as through greenhouse gas emissions, we know that gas causes a range of local and regional health impacts. Gas facilities re release large amounts of oxides of nitrogen, carbon monoxide, volatile organic compounds, and we know that some of these hydrocarbon compounds are highly toxic. Some cause cancer, have hormonal effects at really low levels. Many of the compounds uh, are not assessed for toxicity at all, and certainly not in combination when we're often exposed to them. Research in the US, where the sort of, um, fracking industry has, has become widespread, is now showing that Communities where oil and gas developments are occurring are being exposed to higher levels of hydrocarbon pollution. And also we're seeing studies that show higher rates of asthma and some birth defects really related to the proximity that you live from a gas or oil well. And we know that gas is unhealthy here in, in our homes. Um, about 12% of asthma cases in Australia are thought to be related to gas cooking. Um, as well as other respiratory diseases and slower cognitive development in children where there are household gas appliances. We know that, that really 
Limiting climate change and greenhouse emissions is essential to protect us from increasingly unmanageable health impacts. But we also know that the actions that we take to mitigate climate change largely have really important health benefits. We know that you know, reducing air pollution fresh and freshwater use from fossil energy generation, reducing urban pollution and inactivity related to our transport systems, having healthier diets with low environmental footprint and also with um, uh, better designed cities with more access to green spaces and lower exposure to pollution. These things actually would make our health much better, both in the short and, and the long term, as well as being combined with benefits of reducing greenhouse emissions. So we sort of have a choice whether we pursue a, um, a low carbon future or whether we pursue a, a return to a sort of high fossil fuel um, based on with more gas and Basically, we can't have both. We're either going to have a healthy future or an unhealthy one. So it's, it's, a, it's a critical moment in, in, in our time. Thank you very much, George. That was a really excellent presentation and you covered an awful lot of ground in a very short period of time. Your presentation reminded me of is that 2020, as we all know, has been a really awful year and uh, we've all become very, uh, for, you know, for good reasons, caught up with the, the pandemic that has uh, come upon us. But, um, you know, it was not that many months ago we had those terrible bushfires, you know, took out large sections of some of our most biodiverse special places, uh, but also have had such lasting impact upon people, uh, human health, homelessness, really was a very clear demonstration of direct health impacts of uh, climate change through extreme events. So I think I'll definitely pick up on some of those points in my email. Now I'd like to present our second speaker, Professor Penny Sackett, Penny was Australia's chief scientist from 2008 to 2011 and she is an honorary professor at the Climate Change Institute at the ANU. Penny will speak to us about the impact of gas on emissions and climate change. Thanks Penny. Thank you very much. I'm coming to you uh, today where I sit in Canberra on the country of the Ngunnawal people. Let's get started. So I want to talk to you today about gas, climate, and Australia. I want to start by trying to give us some perspective. This is what the temperature looks like over the last 800,000 years on Earth. And you can see I've marked here where the first Homo sapiens appeared, and then later on when what we call the Ice Age, although there have been many, when the Ice Age occurred. And after that, the temperature rose, and we're now at the red dot. And in the green oval, I've shown the period over which we know that modern agriculture flourished. Penny's presentation on climate science and where we're at in terms of global greenhouse gas emissions was excellent, but it leaned a lot on her slides. So I've cut a lot of that for the sake of audio. Those are the temperatures agreed by the Paris Accord to which Australia is a but highly recommend, if you haven't seen greenhouse gas charts tracking the last 800,000 years, to check it out. It's stark, severe, and very clear that it's human activity that's causing the unprecedented spike in global greenhouse gas emissions and the temperature increases we're seeing. If all countries followed Australia's current path, temperatures would be even higher, three to four degrees above pre-industrial, and that's shown by the purple arrow. 
what's causing this temperature rise, greenhouse gases, as I'm sure you're aware. Here we see plots over the last thousand years of the three most important greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide on the left, methane in the middle, and nitrous oxide on the right. And in each case, you can see that round about 1850 or so, those greenhouse gases began to climb almost exclusively due to, um, to human beings and their activities. Um, and that, that sharp rise has occurred uh, since about 1950. To put that in perspective, what does carbon dioxide look like over the last 800,000 years? Well, here's a plot. And way up at the top right-hand corner, you see where we are now with the red dot. That red arrow shows how much has changed just since about 1750. The same is true of methane. In fact, an even sharper rise in methane compared to the past 800,000 years. This is not a kind of world that humans have lived in before. And the more we know, the more reason we have for concern about the impacts, the climate impacts, even at a small amount of warming. So if we consider three different impacts of climate change, the impact on unique and threatened systems, the uh, impact on extreme weather events, and what is called large-scale singular events, but you might be more familiar with the term tipping points, that is to say, the more we know, the more we know that we're taking on great risk, even at two degrees, with very high risk to our ecosystems, high risk for extreme weather events, and even a moderately high risk of passing irreversible tipping points. I thought I'd just spell out what Melbourne might expect over the next 20 years, and this is due to climate change that I'm afraid is already locked in. You can expect temperatures to rise in all seasons, more hot days, warm spells, heat waves, fewer frosts, less rainfall, at least in the winter and spring. When the rainfall comes, it, uh, there's increased probability that it will be extreme, high intensity. Sea level rise continue to rise, and the height of extreme sea level events with storm surges will increase. And harsher fire weather. In fact, it's been recently estimated that the kind of fire weather we had at Black Summer, uh, this last Black Summer, would become four times more likely if we let global warming proceed from about 1.1, where we are now, to 2 degrees. But the growth of fossil fuels continues to grow. Coal may be leveling. Oil is definitely rising. And gas is rising faster still. The primary emissions from gas production and use um, are carbon dioxide and methane from the energy that's used to extract it in the first place. There can be methane loss um, directly to the atmosphere during extraction, for example, from flaring and leaks. Additional methane loss during transport carbon dioxide emissions if that gas is liquefied, and methane leaks in pipes and in our own homes, as you've heard, at end use. And in fact, the methane over the past 30 years has been growing. We had some hope that it was flattening for a while, but round about 2007, it's been on the increase again. And a large part of this is due to gas and oil. 
But what about gas compared to coal? Haven't we heard that that uh, we can wean ourselves off coal by going to gas instead and it'll be uh, better for the climate? Well, depending on what the process is and depending on its end use, gas does produce about 30 to 50 percent fewer emissions than coal. But if the methane losses are large, this advantage is substantially reduced, and in some cases, the advantage is reduced to zero. That is to say, when you combine the CO2 and the CH4, um, you're no better off than you are with coal. That is some of the experience we know is happening in the U.S. and Canada over the past decade. Now, the reason why methane is so important is because although it doesn't persist as long in the atmosphere, it has a much higher global warming potential. And this brings me to the production gap, the gap between the fossil fuels that we're on, uh, we've pledged the, the path of fossil fuels that we're actually taking, which is higher than that, and the fossil fuel production that we need to drop starting now to have a chance of 1.5 or 2 degrees. And that production gap extends not just to coal, but to oil and gas as well. Each of these fossil fuels must decline independently if we're going to have temperatures between 1.5 and 2 degrees Celsius. The Narabai project alone would produce about 5 megatons of CO2 equivalent at exactly the same time Australia needs to reduce by 7.5 megatons in order to meet every year, in order to meet its 2030 target. The U.S. and the U.K. are now weaning themselves off of coal, yes, partly through gas, but even more strongly through renewables. In fact, in the U.K., transitioning to renewables has led the way in reducing the electricity grid reductions in 2017, with gas coming in third after energy, lowering energy demand through energy efficiency. So is there a role for gas? Yes to firm up increasing renewable electricity generations in the near term, while batteries and other non-carbon strategies are coming online. But even the Australian uh, market operator does not expect that additional gas production will be needed. And we certainly cannot afford additional gas production if we want the climate to stay on the safer side of two degrees warming. Thank you. Thank you very much, Penny. That's... um Yes, those are quite scary graphs, but I think it really just highlights how significant this shift towards the idea of a gas-fired recovery is in terms of climate change. It's been very much downplayed, being a, you know, a greener fuel and part of the transition, but it's really not, this is not time to be using gas as a transition. So now I'd like to um, introduce Mark Ogg, our third speaker. Uh, Mark is a principal advisor at the Australian Institute who spent many years researching and publishing about the gas industry and the economy. Mark is speaking to us about the economic dimensions of gas and the gas-fired recovery. Welcome, Mark. I'd like to thank the organisers for inviting me to speak. It's really great to see such a great turnout. And I'd also like to acknowledge the uh, traditional owners of the land. I'm speaking from the Jajawaran people. Right. Okay. So today, as I'm sure people are aware, the government's announced uh, its blueprint for a gas-fired recovery. 
and uh, it includes opening up five new gas basins, one of which is the Beedaloo Basin, and that gas basin alone has around has been estimated by the Northern Territory Government to have around 540,000 uh, petajoules of gas, which is equivalent to about 100 years of Australian Australia's current gas exports, which are already massive. So, and that's just one of the gas basins they're talking about. So, um, it's potentially an enormous amount of gas. I just wanted to start by talking about what this is really about, because what it's absolutely not about is a COVID recovery, because it fails the basic test of the COVID recovery, uh, which is to create jobs. The primary thing that we're facing uh, that we need to have a COVID recovery for in the first place is to deal with uh, expected high un- current and expected high unemployment, promoting the gas industry, uh, is probably the worst way you could do that because it, it's a very small employer and has the lowest jobs intensity of pretty much any industry in Australia. So promoting pretty much any other industry would create more jobs. So what's it really about? The answer is that what it's really about is is the government giving taxpayers money to one of its key political constituents, which is the uh, oil and gas industry. And to be specific, the oil and gas industry in Australia is uh, a group of very large uh, global multinational oil and gas companies like um, Woodside, Chevron, Exxon, ConocoPhillips, uh, Sandos and Origin. We allow them to export gas from Australia. It's been presented as trying to assist Australian manufacturing through lowering gas prices, but it's not about that. In reality, it's not really about that at all. Um, if it had been about that, we would never have allowed open slather on exports that linked Australian domestic gas prices to global gas prices, which everybody knew in advance would raise gas prices, which would increase the burden on manufacturing and provide a windfall to the export gas industry. If we were serious about looking after our manufacturers, that would never have been allowed to happen, and we wouldn't have continued without a reservation policy or a cap on exports, um, neither of which, neither of which we have. Even now, the government is talking about a voluntary code of conduct by the gas industry, which is, which we, which, um, I, I would suggest would be pretty meaningless, and are talking a bit about a reservation policy, but they're pushing that, uh, way down the track. This has nothing to do with a, a COVID recovery and, um, the economic arguments against it. The first I've already mentioned is jobs intensity. So different industries provide different amounts of jobs per million dollars invested. Education and training, for instance, provides about 16 jobs. Healthcare is about 14. The oil and gas industry are about 0.4. So pretty much the lowest job intensity of any industry in Australia. So supporting any industry other than the oil and gas industry would provide more jobs, which, as I've mentioned, is the primary aim of any kind of economic stimulus recovery package. Industry says, well, it's not really about creating jobs uh, in the oil and gas industry because they employ so few people, but maybe it's about providing manufacturing jobs by providing cheap uh, cheap gas, which would um, allow a boom in manufacturing. So this graph shows over time, um, it goes back to 1985, unfortunately, the Sorry, the dates aren't on the bottom axis I've just noticed. But the blue line shows gas production, which has tripled uh, in Australia since 2014. 
and the orange line shows manufacturing jobs. So we've tripled gas production and gas manufacturing jobs have continued to fall. And in that entire era where we did have cheap gas, going back to um, 1985, which is about three quarters of that orange line, we had very cheap gas for that whole period and we did not have a, a gas boom anyway. So it's the, the gas manufacturing jobs is a bit of a furphy. I should also mention that um, feedstocks often comes up. People talk about how we need gas for uh, feedstock. About 1% of the gas produced in Australia uh, is used for chemical feedstock. So we've definitely got enough um, uh, gas for feedstocks. Um, more gas supply won't bring gas prices down. This graph shows um, the uh, East Coast consumption of gas or the production of gas in the blue line and the gas price in Sydney in the orange line. So as we tripled gas supply um, over the last few years, the price uh, also tripled. There's just no evidence that uh, increasing supply brings down demand. Now, there's another reason it won't bring down gas prices, and that is because we've sent all of our cheap gas overseas. So um, gas and oil and gas companies target uh, lower cost extraction cost gas before higher cost gas. They go for the cheap stuff first. And because we're exporting twice the amount uh, we use on the East Coast uh, every year, uh, we've taken all the, uh, the cheap gas and we've sent it overseas. And what's remaining is very expensive to extract, um, very expensive to extract gas that uh, is ranges between about um, probably six and nine dollars a gigajoule, uh, which is which is very expensive. And then you've got to, that's for the extraction, and then you've got to add transport costs on that. So um, the days of cheap gas are over, and increasing production is not going to. Uh, there's no way it can actually bring gas prices down. Um, another question I was just going to address was, do renewables need help from gas? Because there's these suggestions that we need uh, gas to firm up renewables. Now, as Penny mentioned, we actually don't need firming power from renewables for the time being. The Australian energy market operator has told us that. But even if we did, even if you accepted that premise, the cost of renewables even with energy storage is far lower than gas. So in that green circle on the right-hand side, um, you can see that there's a number of bars there for solar and wind with various levels of energy storage. So even with storage, they're cheaper than gas. On the left-hand side, in the, in, on the left-hand yellow circle, um, uh, and, and it provides the same service, basically. It's dispatchable electricity, whether it's provided by gas or um, gas or renewables with storage. And I just also highlighted in the middle there gas with carbon capture and storage, which the industry is claiming is um, zero emissions. That is ridiculously expensive and there's no economic reason for, uh, for choosing that, that path. The blue line here shows actual gas supply for energy generation in Australia uh, over the last few years, so you can see it's dropped by about um, 60% since about 2014, and it's projected to drop another 70% on that by the late 2020s. So we absolutely don't need any more new gas power generation, according to the Australian Energy Market Operator. And they also, in their projections under the ISP, which is the Integrated System Plan, 
they're not seeing much of a future at all for gas in Australia. So thank you very much, Mark. You've got a lot of really interesting information there, um, some very compelling arguments. Very few jobs, no, they don't pay any tax. Why wouldn't we want to give them a whole lot of public money to subsidise um, their operations? I've got a few questions that have come through. A question for Penny. There seems to be no conclusive data on the level and full extent of, of fugitive emissions of methane across the gas production, transport and consumption life cycle. This seems to be critical data missing. What can be done to ameliorate this dysfunction? So, first of all, the data that we do have is highly variable. And most of that data comes from, can, uh, from Canada and from the U.S. Um, and so it's not as easy as saying that one facility, that one's, you know, size fits all in terms of the intentional release of gas, the flaring, um, the fugitive leaks, uh, and so forth. It also depends on um, the type of production. So what they have found in the U.S. and in Canada is that it's often the case that uh, a few, and when I say few, it's still hundreds, of, of uh, particular production facilities will be creating most of the emissions. This is why it's critical to not just sample a few. You actually need to make sure that you're doing sampling enough that you're getting those few that are creating most of the emissions. And probably one of the best ways to do that, which we haven't yet, to my knowledge, done in Australia, is to conduct airborne studies and to not just do them once but several times because these emissions can also vary in time. Uh, there have been a few very small, um, Mark may even want to speak to the studies that have been done, but they're nothing like what we need to feel confident about what of the, particularly the methane emissions from gas. Thank you, Penny. For Mark, this is a question I think that's, that's quite relevant to uh, probably a number of people who are participating in tonight's webinar. AEMO says that we will run out of gas in the southeastern states by 2024. Is this true? This was the justification for the AGL Crib Point Terminal in Victoria to support Victoria, South Australia and New South Wales so that we can import LNG from overseas. Uh, look, we will run out of gas. Um, because it's a scarce resource and we're shipping vast quantities, twice the amount we're actually using in Australia, uh, we're shipping it, shipping it overseas. So uh, it will deplete or at least affordable gas uh, is going to deplete. But adding a bit more gas here and there is going to, you know, might prolong it for a little while, but um, it's not going to uh, solve the problem unless you open up vast reserves like we're talking about in the Beetaloo Basin, which is a complete climate disaster that might, you know, pad it out for a bit longer. So, uh, you know, there's a really simple option, and that's divert some of the, um, you know, some of the stuff we're allowing to be exported. But a better option than that is to just get off gas. And, um, and that's what the COVID recovery should actually be, not giving money to the global um, gas giants operating in Australia, but actually spending money to get off gas. And you can do that in three ways because there's three types of gas use. We use gas for power generation, uh, we use it in our homes most and, and buildings mostly for heating and heating hot water, and then we use it in industry. And in all of those cases, there's cheaper alternatives to gas. 
So renewables with storage, as I mentioned, are already cheaper than gas. So if we build renewable energy, we create um, heaps of jobs and we uh, get off gas in that sector. Uh, in terms of our houses, and I've got a shout out to Tim Forsey, who I hope is here. He was, and you can hear an interview with Tim also on Climactic. Yeah, he's done fantastic work on this, but um, it's already cheaper to heat all of our houses and, and our buildings um, using uh, electrical heat pumps, which are incredibly uh, efficient and much healthier. If we use some COVID recovery money to actually assist households and businesses to uh, get rid of their, their gas heating systems and put in efficient electrical heat pumps, we would save a vast amount of gas. And that could be directed towards manufacturing that needs it. But even in the manufacturing sector, if we spent some money, only a few companies use a lot of gas. Now, if we actually put a little bit of money into assisting them with the capital costs of using electrical systems to provide the heat that they need for manufacturing, we would save a huge amount of gas. And also, those companies would save money year on year forever because electrical systems are by and large cheaper than using gas for fuel. So we should be having a gas-free recovery, not a gas-fired recovery. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And actually, Tim Forsey did actually send a, a question about, you know, when it can be three times more expensive to heat your home with gas versus using a reverse cycle aircon, why do people persist in heating their homes by burning gas? And and I guess, um, and we also had a, we've had a couple of uh, questions or comments around, you know, just the potential of actually implementing more energy efficiency and just doing more changing over, you know, getting rid of gas when we can actually use something else. So there's definitely uh, interest in the you know, in the Zoom room here in in actually you know uh, using the the money from the recovery to actually make some of that happen and and provide a whole lot of benefits and jobs across the community. The next lot of very interesting presentations that we're going to have we've heard from three experts. Now we're going to hear some quick presentations from some very inspiring activists who are currently fighting against gas uh, developments. Um, we're going to hear from Sally Hunter from Lock the Gate, followed by Ella Simons, who's a student striker. And after those two short presentations, we're then going to move into the practical part of this evening's webinar, which is the email writing component. And that's, that's going to be led by Sue Dwyer from Climate for Change. So I'd like to now hand over to Sally. Hi, good evening, everyone. It's fabulous to be here tonight. And I will share my screen with you for a quick overview about Narrabri. Um, so I'm uh, living in Narrabri, northwest New South Wales, and this is my beautiful family. Uh, we are grass-fed beef producers, and I have three sons who would all love to be on the land, and you know we'd love to see that uh, be able to happen for them, basically. For those who aren't aware, Narrabri is in northwest New South Wales. Quick little geography lesson there, uh, and it's on Gomeroy country. I just wanted to give you a little bit of an overview about what the impacts to agriculture will be from the Narrabri Gas Project. Um, I'm assuming most of you are a little bit aware about the Narrabri Gas Project. Um, it's in, it's uh, proposed for 850 gas wells. Um, it'll end up looking like this country. This is a shot in Queensland, um, but this is the idea uh, of the gas wells that spread across the countryside. It starts off in State Forest, and that's the plan for the Narrabri gas field. It's planned to start in the Pilliga State Forest and then creep across the country like this image shows. 
there's a range of, you know, impacts to agriculture and communities and to First Nations people, but I'll just give you a quick snapshot tonight. I guess the greatest impact is the fact that farmers don't have a right to say no. There is no legal standing um, for farmers to be able to say no to infrastructure. So that includes uh, gas pipelines as well as the gas wells themselves and a whole range of other infrastructure ponds and and uh, different infrastructure that they need to operate from, which is why they make a start in the state forest um, and then they spread out um, across farmland from there. Um, the second uh, really important impact, I guess, is the fact that um, there is not insurance coverage available for farmers from the risks of spills and leaks and contamination from gas fields. And we've had the Australia's biggest insurance agency come out and say quite clearly that they cannot provide insurance to farmers. The third thing, I guess, is that agriculture is obviously highly vulnerable to uh, the impacts of climate change. Um, and so that is, as I see it, the three major impacts to agriculture. Just a little bit of an overview of a few of the main problems with the Nabra Gas Project. Um, it will pull up 80 kilograms per minute, every minute, for the entire 25 years of its lifespan of toxic salts. And these are naturally occurring toxic salts, but normally they're buried, you know, a kilometre underground and they're not on Earth's surface. Um, and currently there is no plan for what to do with those toxic salts. Another issue is, you know, in such a dry nation, the Pilliga Forest is such a dry area, the northwest is such a dry area, prone to drought, um, and every day of uh, this project, the proponents uh, propose to pull up five megalitres of water a day, so just over one and a half swimming pools, Olympic-sized swimming pools, every day of water we pulled up. Experts have predicted, based on averages, that um, there'll be between 15 and 100, 130 toxic spills um, and leaks over the lifespan of the project. It's only in exploration phase at the moment, and there's already been a dozen spills in the forest, and so this is one of them, as you can see. And as Penny pointed out, it will produce five megatons of emissions every year, at least. So just a quick overview of where the process is at. Um, it was referred to the IPC, which is the Independent Planning Commission, to make a decision uh, earlier this year. Everyone was given an opportunity to present to that IPC public hearing in July. Also put in written submissions, and I'm sure most of you probably took the opportunity to do that. The decision is expected on the 30th of September, so in just a couple of weeks um, we're going to have a decision. Obviously. You know, there's no coincidence that this um, federal political push has come at this time, and I'm sure the IPC is under incredible pressure right now. As has been alluded to already, you know, we can support the, the electricity needs of the nation with renewables. Um, we are taking a small step to do that locally with a new organisation called Jenny Energy um, that will be launched um, just a couple of days before the Narrabri gas decision is handed down um, and we have a, a proposal to develop a virtual power plant in our region and provide that um, backup support to the grid. And of course we will continue to lock the gate. There's been, you know, there's overwhelming opposition to the Narrabri gas project and currently there's no pipeline to deliver that gas anywhere at all um, and that's a 
pretty hard thing to get through very angry farmers. So uh, we shall see what the future brings. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you very much, Sally. That's uh, that's a huge fight you've got on your hands, and um, uh, you know the best of luck to you. I'm sure well, all of us are with you on it. I'd now like to ask Ella Simons to join us. Thank you for having me. So my name's Ella, and I'm 13 years old. Um, and so I'm just going to chat a little bit about school strike for climate. I hope most of you have heard for them. We're a bunch of students and we organise rallies, protests, online events. We run a student leadership program. Um, we have concerts on Fridays um, to show how much the youth care about climate change and that we need to fight for climate justice together. So our part in this movement, I guess, is showing that like the youngest generations are going to make this change and that we know this is affecting our future and we know that change has to come and our leaders have proved to us that they're not doing anything. So it's our job now. Um, and so on September 25, that is our National Day of Action. It's a gas mobilisation. So we're focusing on helping fund our future, not gas. And we'll be having different live streams throughout the day. And there'll be like a large a national action, um, I think at 6.30 AST. And so... We're pushing to say, call your politicians, tell them that this is not fair. We know this is like going to affect students like myself in our future. And we also see, see, we have also seen it's already affecting people. We saw the fire season last year. Like this, the things that we thought were going to come in the future are happening right now. And we need, we need to take immediate action and seeing the things that were passed this morning, the announcements Scott Morrison has made just keeps proving to us why and why we have to continue fighting harder and stronger. And so I would love to invite you all to come along to these live streams on September 25. Um, obviously, everywhere else but Victoria will be having in-person things, but it is still incredible to have things online. And we've seen online that, like, we can be just as powerful and we can educate people and help and support them to be calling their politicians, to be writing emails and to be taking action. So I would love you all to come along to that and to know that like we're all in this fight together and that students are side by side and we're doing what we can and we're showing how much we care and that we will take this action. Thank you very much, Ella. Well, well done. I know we all just absolutely love the, the school strikers. The, uh, the, the strikes last year and the, the marches on Parliament were just fantastic and lifted the spirits of those of us who've been uh, working on climate change, sadly, for, for way too many years now. Um, but we hope that getting all your youthful energy in there will actually be the thing that makes a difference. So thank you for joining us. Uh, now I'm going to hand over to Sue Dwyer, who's going to guide us through the email writing session because we're going to now get really practical and uh, use the motivation of this, these fantastic presentations to get some emails out to, um, to Polly's this evening. So over to you, Sue. Hi, I'm Sue, and I'm speaking to you from Wurundjeri Country in the Kulin Nation, and I'm the coordinator of Climate for Change's MP Engagement Group. Firstly, in Australia, I'd like to 
tell you, we live in a pretty robust democracy. MPs are elected as our representatives and they have to represent our views as voters and constituents. Um, that's their job. We've lost a little bit of faith in them, but we actually do have a pretty good democracy in Australia and we need to use it more. MPs want us to vote for them and they want to know what the mood is in their electorates and what constituents are thinking, but they can't know that unless we tell them because they're not telepathic. So we have to tell them what we want. And we desperately need carbon emissions to go down fast to satisfy our Paris obligations and to have a safe future. And we know individual and industry actions on their own are not enough to bring emissions down at the scale and speed we need to make a difference. We need governments at all levels to have policies to make this happen. There's plenty of solutions out there. We've heard about some of those tonight, but unfortunately at present we're lacking the political will to make them happen. We have to tell them what we want. And the evidence is, as a couple of our speakers have already said, that engaging with our MPs works. I've spoken to staffers and MPs who've told me that the more noise we make, the more they take notice, and that even simple emails get attention if they get a lot of them on a particular issue. So writing an email is a simple, gentle action, but incredibly powerful. And they've also told us, politicians, that they know that each email, as Mark said, each email they receive on an issue means lots of other people feel the same way. I'm not sure if it's a thousand, but... If you send an email tonight, you know you're speaking on behalf of at least 10, maybe 100 other people. So your voice is really powerful. And tonight and over the next few days, we're aiming to get hundreds, if not thousands, of emails sent out to MPs. Calling your MP is even more powerful. So if you can, please call your MP or one of the relevant coalition ministers in the next day or so to raise your concerns. And visiting is even more powerful. So most MPs are still meeting constituents online at present. So if you're up for it, ask for an appointment. So right now what we want you to do is to tell your local MP and the coalition ministers what you think and want about the issues with gas in the webinar tonight. So this action is a little bit different to the ones I usually run. been specifically tailored for you tonight. That's great, Sue. I think you've given everyone really great guidance there to, to help people get started. And I'm pretty sure that people are typing as we speak. When people send their letters into their members, um, and I know we, we write our letters and we think, right, I've got that off my chest. Now uh, what happens? What, do people get responses? And, and how do you respond to a response that you might get? Well, some MPs are better at responding than others. Should expect a reply, though, particularly from your local MPs. And if you don't get one within um, 28 to 30 days, then I would write back and say, I wrote to you on this date and I haven't yet received a reply and restate your issues and ask for a reply. So keep on their backs. They're our elected representatives. We need to keep them on their toes. Um, they're answerable to us, so that's the thing to do. If they do respond to us, it might be that um, there could be a number of sorts of replies that you get. You might get a form letter that they're sending out to everybody, in which case I would write back and say politely, thank you very much for your response to my letter, but you didn't address my concerns, and then restate 
what it is that you want to know from them. Keep the pressure on. Don't let them get away with just bobbing you off. If they write a personal reply, and some MPs will do that, or uh, something that's a thoughtful response, that's an invitation to engage and develop a relationship with them, and I would definitely keep that going. Um, and I know several people who, you know, like, like me and like lots of other people, we're not anybody special, but um, MPs will listen to us and we can strike up a conversation with them and that's how we're going to change their minds and get them on side to do things for us. I would just add to that, to don't, uh, not to forget your local and state politicians. Uh, states are moving much faster than the federal Commonwealth government is on these issues. Um, and so, you know, some, uh, every state and territory in Australia has set a 2050 net zero target. So the only the only government that's left out is the Commonwealth. Um, states, I think, actually recognize uh, that there are jobs in renewables and that that's the cheaper way to go. So while you're writing those letters, I'd also suggest writing them to your to your um, state politicians as well. Encourage them, compliment them on the things that have gone right and um, hold them to task to do better. And once you've written one email, it's very easy. The first one's the hardest. Then you can cut and paste it and send it off to 10 other people really quickly. And if you're going to do that tonight or in the next few days, please put the hello at GCAN email address up in the, the BCC field because we'd love to be able to, to say that, you know, we've sent off a 1,000 letters to our MPs tonight. That would be an amazing achievement. Do it. Yes, and on that note, that's fantastic. Thank you very much for running that, that session for us. Um, I'm now going to, to hand over to um, Belinda Hayden um, from the organising group who's going to, to wrap up the evening, tell us what happens next, and also vote now because she's going to um, give us the results of the poll. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. Thanks so much. As I said, my name's Belinda Hayden. I'm one of the organisers. I'm from the GCAN, the Glen Ira Emergency Climate Action Network, and coming to you from the lands of the Bunurong people. So tonight we've heard about experts about why the gas-led recovery from the COVID recession isn't just, it's just not an option in terms of the economy, the environment or our health. And we can see a radically better future ahead with a renewable recovery leading us out of recession. Our panel of experts have answered questions from the audience to help inform our understanding so we, we can then engage with our elected representatives through emails and phone calls and let them know that we stand for renewable, regenerative recovery. So let's show the results of the, the resolution. I'll get Josh to share those with us. Thanks so much, Josh. So we've got 100% of the people who are attending tonight voting for the poll. So I think that says it. We plan on um, sharing these results with our local members of parliament and ministers and hope that you will too in your letter writing. And we'll send these details to you in, an, in a follow-up email tomorrow or in the next couple of days. And I know I don't need to remind you that we are in a climate emergency. We are facing an existential crisis that's affecting all living beings on the planet and the time available to act is short. The government declared its hand today that they are supporting a fossil fuel future and tonight with this event, alongside our other community groups, we are adding our grassroots voices to the movements to support a rapid national renewable energy-led recovery. And we need all of you to join us. 
The government will proceed with its plan to continue supporting fossil fuels unless we tell them that's not what we want. So I hope you got to write an email to your MP, to some ministers or even both, and remember that an imperfect letter sent is better than a perfect email that never gets sent. So get these emails out to your MPs as soon as possible. We have not run a webinar before, and it's been a great experience getting this webinar together in under four weeks. So thanks to you all for your patience, enthusiasm, and commitment. Thanks to Josh and Zaley in the Port Phillip Eco Centre and all of our neighbour and sibling and cousin groups across the country. Thanks to Gerard Steele, traditional owner from the Bunurong Foundation, and our incredible experts, Professor Penny Sackett, Dr George Crisp, and Mark O. Sally Hunter and Ella Simons for sharing your stories and Sue Dwyer for your excellent facilitation of the email writing. And to you, our audience, for being so wonderful and participative and for your generous donations. We're going to have another event following the release of the federal budget on the 6th of October. But in the meantime, remember, get your emails out, pick up the phone. MPs are our elected representatives. It's their job to listen to us. So, of course, this is just one form of action, and we encourage you to get involved in all different kinds of actions so we can get our voices heard. We'll put up a poll now so that you can tell us what kinds of actions you are now inspired to take part in. And stay in touch and get involved. Our groups welcome new members, so do reach out. We need your help. We need your skills and your expertise, so if you have something to share, get in touch with us. Uh, a member of our team will put some links in the chat so that you can sign up to our groups, follow our Facebook pages and so on. And absolutely do make sure that you get involved in the School Strike for Climate on Friday 25th of September. It is for everyone. We need to support the kids. It's next Friday. Get involved. It takes a movement of people to build up the momentum to make change and we need the change now more than ever. We are building on a campaign and we need you alongside us and working together towards a safer future. Thank you for coming. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community. You can find out more about the people of the Climactic Collective and all the shows on the network at climactic.com.au. Thank you for listening. And until next time, keep up the great work and take care of each other in these climactic times. The Climactic Collective. This show is produced by Hear Media a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E media.studio. Media.